Hello and welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. And we want these podcasts to be a resource for students of architecture as well as practitioners and to be more than just a CPD tick box. So today I'm here in the offices of John Thompson Partnership, JTP, one of the leading practices of placemaking, architects and master planners with an international portfolio. And I'm here to talk to Director Nigel Bidwell. We might talk about what actually placemaking means itself, because we're primarily here to talk about design reviews with Nigel, who's a member of a number of design review panels. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we start on this general conversation of professional practice. Where did you study? How did you decide on architecture? (laughs) I studied at Newcastle University and I studied for both degrees there. In terms of why I chose architecture, originally I was very keen on graphic design but I quickly understood that I wanted something more from the work in terms of a a technical aspect to it and a scientific one. And I studied physics, English and maths, as well as art at school. When I went to Newcastle, um, I was determined to travel really as far as possible away from home. So I grew up in Essex. Um, But I really liked the course at Newcastle. There was a very much a balance between the art and, and the scientific or the, or the technical. And it really suited me down to the ground. And I love the, the city as well, a very walkable city. And I think that was a really good move for me, living that far away, because it gives you a certain ability to, to manage. And sometimes it's survival, but other times you actually excel. And I think that's really important. When it came for me to do my part one placement, we're in the midst of a, a very heavy recession, and I remember initially working for a one-man band designing community pubs, which was a, a, a real experience. Before then, moving on to a local authority architecture department, of which there's obviously very few now, and it was a really inspiring experience and really refreshed my appetite in architecture to then go back and do my part two in Newcastle. So, and then, and then following on from part two, then your, your actual main work experience, because you've only been here at JTP for a couple of years, I think. Uh, I've only been here for six months. Six months? Okay. Indeed. So, from university, uh, my, my work was spotted at a, an exhibition by a gentleman at Terry Farrell and Partners, and I was recruited to Farrell's 19 years ago, and, and, and had a really important learning process, really beginning to understand the philosophy of the practice before then deciding 19 years on to to look for a new challenge and a new type of of structure of company. Out of that 19 years, or or you don't have to kind of name names, but were there any formative experiences, any things that you did that you would recommend other people don't do? Well, I think my first sort of formative experience actually occurred at university and Newcastle had a very good approach to using external practitioners within the course and there was a particular gentleman called Tony Watson who uh, worked up in Newcastle and I think with him I realised that there's not one right answer in architecture there's actually many answers but it's about having commitment and building a story as to why you've chosen that particular path when it comes to designs but also in terms of how you approach projects as well. So that really was an eye-opening moment for me at university. But I think 
working at local authority, the idea of collaboration. Of course, the planning department was one floor up from where I worked, and so you had regular contact. And I think that was important because you know planners aren't our enemies. They're actually people that we work with to achieve things. But then coming to Farrell's, it was the case that I very quickly immerse myself into the philosophy of the practice where you look beyond the red line and architecture is about communication, explaining how you design things, understanding that a design process is incredibly important in terms of asking yourself why you're making decisions. And I think that's why I was very much attracted to JTP because there's a a very happy marriage between architecture and master planning and we look to create fabulous places and so actually that grounding at Farrell's is serving me well here. Yeah but the, the you know the word planning has a kind of a policy resonance with many people but mm. I presume you're talking about urban design. Indeed. As a broader. Indeed topic. so placemaking, master planning, looking at complex urban sort of systems whether that's through different typologies, whether it's the understanding of how density relates to intensity of use and activity I love complexity of projects and also three-dimensional master planning. You know, there's lots of things happening below ground, there's lots of things happening at the upper level. And the important thing is actually having the level of debate and interrogation. And that's why here at JTP, I'm very involved in the design review process of our projects and ensuring that the quality is, is the best it can be. No, it's very useful because obviously we're sitting in a quite an echoey room, which it's is true. empty at the moment, but is used for your internal design reviews, you were telling me. But we'll, we'll talk about the kind of more official policy-driven uh, reviews yes. in a moment. But just stick on JTP for one second. It's not an unheard-of practice, but it's, it's not exactly grabbing headlines. It's quietly getting on with some incredible jobs around the world. So mm. can you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on or what this practice does? Yeah, I, I think JTP is it's very interesting because it has a common philosophy and that is one of, again, looking outside of the red line boundary, looking at the external influences and whether they are physical or whether they relate to the community. And so here there's a, a great legacy of community planning, talking to people to understand first before we then look to create something. And, you know, it's a really important process that ties all the schemes together and you'll find that within the office there are some people looking at very low density settlement extensions next to people working on very high density schemes so for example one of the schemes I've been working on recently are the Poplar Gasworks scheme for St Williams and then I've also got a scheme now in Woking where we're looking at towers of up to 35 stories but The interesting thing about that isn't necessarily the architecture alone, which is inspiring, but it's actually what you can do with higher density projects in terms of at ground level. Things have to pay for things, and when you intensify the uses of areas, you tend to find there's a lot more interesting things that can be delivered with the residential or commercial use. Okay, well, on this point, because it'll probably lead into the broader discussion about design reviews anyway, but... Obviously, there you are, you've come from architecture, albeit Terry Farrell's Newcastle University, uh, with a very strong urban Mm -hmm. link. I'm very interested to find out how you learn about this stuff. Is it a question of 19 years of hard-boiled experience? How do you you know what works, is is really what I'm saying. It's about adopting a mindset. It's about being open to external inputs, whether that is 
other people that you work with, or just having a willingness to look and listen. And I think you can undoubtedly teach people techniques. One of the things that I spend a lot of time on is storytelling. And that can take the form of how you present work, whether that's uh, through the critique process or whether it's to client presentations or whether it's through a series of diagrams that actually make up a story for the project. And it's hugely important because there's a graphic element to it as well. It's often what you don't draw that's important as well as what you do. But it's about creating something that people firstly can understand, but secondly, that they can join you in that journey of design. Part of the idea about a design review is working out what a good scheme is and what a bad scheme is even though we've just kind of half agreed that there's no such thing as a good and bad scheme, we all know that there are things that work and things that don't work. So how do you know, how do you, is it an instinct with you, or is it, as I say, through experience, that you've got a general idea about what will work, yeah. uh, so you can exclude you know, 90% of the nonsense, uh, before you start the consultation process? I, th- I think there's a number of ways you can do it. The most important one is imagining yourself there. What do you want from the space? And often the space or the street comes first. That's the thing that that the public uh, and the person on the street engages with. There may be residential schemes where actually they're very exclusive and and you'll never step foot in the building. So actually, what does the scheme offer to the person on the street? And I think being able to immerse yourself in that is really important. In terms of public spaces, often it's the case that you say, would a mother and child be willing or a father and child be willing to spend time in this place? Is it going to be a successful place? And so by thinking in that way, you can start to then continue that conversation into the idea of where do I want my front doors? Where do I want active uses? How should the building come to ground? You know, Obviously exposure to, to sunlight and daylight and the like are, are some very basic factors. But it's that ability to immerse yourself into a future environment and, and really ask the questions as to what you want the place to be. So many projects, the first question we, we say is, actually, what is this place? You know, what's it like? Are there examples that we can use to benchmark the place? What are we truly trying to achieve? And that happens a long time before you ask the question, what does the architecture look like? Is there a bit of psychogeography in there? I think so. I think think architecture is broadening and crossing over into a number of boundaries. I don't have a formalised urban design qualification as such, and and I don't think you necessarily need one, because actually, if you think in a particular way, then, then your projects will naturally diverge into those areas. I work with um, uh, essentially socio-economic experts, I work with geographers, we step over across into public realm and landscape and work with a number of different engineers. So it's the ability to think in a way and have an awareness of our built environment that allows us to make meaningful insertions into other people's worlds. Very good. Okay, look, so we're, we're kind of getting the scene set for this conversation about design reviews, which I think is very important what you've said so far. But design reviews are held by local authorities for what they classify as nationally significant schemes. But in many ways, they become the default requirement of many local authorities for housing and school building and what, what have you. So whether, um, whether they are now 
nationally significant, or whether we build so little in this country that they become nationally significant. Uh, what, is, what does it mean? Just picking up your point as to why we, why we have design reviews and why they're increasingly in use, I think there's, there's two aspects to that. It's very much gone, we've moved to a position now where significant schemes, larger schemes and more complex schemes are, are often reviewed by the local authority and it's become part of the planning process. And, and one of the reasons for that also is due to obviously the funding crisis in relation to local authorities. It's a very sad thing to see that the local authorities' skill sets have been diminished through funding. And there's a project where I've worked on where there is no design officer and actually we have to pay for one, for the scheme, to be appointed from an agreed list. So design, unfortunately, has fallen down the pecking order. And I, I'm on a number of design review panels. There's some that are paid. So therefore, that's a service procured by the local authority. But there's also, the majority of them are voluntary. And so therefore, design professionals give up their time, typically for familiar boroughs, to really just improve design and to support the planning officers in, in, in that aim. And I think, actually, as architects, we have a, a certain sort of social responsibility, and that's one of the ways that I, I like to, to fulfil it. In terms of the design reviews themselves, what's important is the process should be about helping the architect and helping the local authority to get a better building. It's not about another group of architects taking on the design, telling the architect how to design. It's about support and help and direction. And often I've seen a number of individuals on panels not necessarily adopt that approach. They're so, ha they're so quick to get the pen out themselves. And, and that's, that's, um, that's something that's really important in terms of being a panel member. There's a discipline involved. Well, they call for independent and impartial evaluation processes, don't they? So, so there must be a temptation there, but undoubtedly, you, you, you have to resist that. Yeah? You have to, you have to resist it because, again, it goes back to that original point that there are a number of ways to achieve a successful design, and it's about helping people through whether it's guidance through principles or reference to precedent in actually getting the best possible design. And it's not about the panel member designing, it's about the architect that's appointed achieving a better resolution. Okay, there's a document by the RIBA, TCPA, Landscape Institute, Design Council, I think, called Design Review Principle and Practice, which I presume is a Bible by your bedside. So you have that thing over here, which I'm guessing arose out of the early CABE structure. Yeah. How embedded is this process now in the, in the planning I, I, I think it's, it's almost the norm, but I'm commenting from a position of working on larger projects. There's a slight dichotomy with design review, and that is that the larger projects tend to have better known, more qualified architects working on them. And that doesn't mean that the, the likes of Hawkins Brown, AHMM, Richard Rogers are above design review, they're not. However, there's a number of less significant or, or, or less impactful projects as such that, that actually sneak beneath the radar. And, and I think this is a real question for design review. There's only limited resource. 
However, there's a number of uh, buildings that I'm sure we all see on our high streets and streets where we just think, how on earth did that happen? And it's not a big scheme, and therefore maybe it's not seen as significant, but in terms of its impact on our environments, it's, it's hugely damaging. And uh, you'd hope that design review would look to improve some of those buildings as well. But as I say, re resources are stretched, and it's really, we're very reliant on the local planning officers to actually say, this scheme needs a design review. Yeah, that's a very good point you made. And in terms of how that process works, could you explain? I mean, in terms of you know, a project is sent to a strategic planning committee, if it doesn't have the backing of a design review, in some ways, as I gather, it's probably liable to fail, which is quite a, quite a significant power on your part. Yeah, no, not always, I would say. Uh, there's a level of interpretation of the design review's letter. And what I mean by that is that often a local authority will use the letter from a design review to reinforce a position that they currently have. And sometimes the outputs of the design review letter will be given less significance on the basis of a whole range of different other criteria. Inevitably with planning, politics are involved as well. What I would say though is it's seen applicants are encouraged to engage with a design review panel as a way of ensuring quality and there's undoubtedly a benefit in meeting with the panel and being able to say at committee that you've been through a process with the panel. What I, what I would add to that though is there's nothing worse than approaching the panel two weeks before you're submitting and often panels become quite angry when an applicant or an architect actually presents to the panel and then when asked when they're submitting for planning, the answer is two weeks. And the reason why that causes anger is because it's quite clear it's a tick block exercise and they're not looking to modify the scheme or improve the scheme. It's simply a case so they can say, we've been to the panel. So early as possible? I, I, the best schemes tend to approach the panel at a very early stage to set out the principles and to uh, talk about emerging ideas for design. A direction can be not necessarily set but advised and then to follow up with a second meeting with the panel to then say how some of those issues have been resolved. In and a, that, in and a that panel meeting is, is a sit around the table chat with drawings pinned to the wall? Or uh, a, it, it, it can vary and um, so some of the panels uh, there's normally five or six members and the architect will present on a screen or with boards. One thing that more architects should do is present with models, they're the most accessible thing and allow the panel to most quickly understand the, the proposal as well. Um, so, but it can be com quite flexible and what you find is with the paid panels it tends to include a site visit as well which can be a very useful tool for conversations with the architects and the clients as well about the different constraints on the site. With the voluntary panels they tend to be more of a case that there's an overview of the site and typically the panel it will be familiar with the site anyway, mm. but it's a slightly different level of investigation. Mm. And okay, so that, that's very useful. Yeah. Are there any things that you've seen which architects should definitely avoid doing because yes. it's never going to pass? Yes, I, I feel very strongly about this. You would be amazed some of the presentations I've seen from architects. 
For me, the worst thing that an architect can do is simply present a proposal within the red line. I want to see a master plan drawing. I want to see the proposals in context. And you'd think that would be a fairly obvious thing to do. But so often, architects want to present what the scheme looks like rather than fully understanding the context. The other aspect goes back to the, the issue of storytelling and narrative. I want to be convinced. I want people to clearly set out the reasoning for why they've made decisions. I want them to sell me the proposal so that I can agree with them and, uh, and, and say, yes, you know, this has really been well thought through. But often it can be a very jerky proposal where there's the site constraints, they do some history without saying what the history means and how it's interpreted, and then suddenly we're presented with the end result, the answer as such. And, and it doesn't, design just doesn't work like that. And you want to understand the decisions that people have made. And you really see the difference between well-versed presenting architects and those that haven't really had that discipline in the past. And you're, you're still able to spot the classic architect's post-rationalisation stuff? Right? Well, post-rationalisation is, is always a part of it. What you might, how you might phrase it is actually it's a boiling down of the story to something that, that, that is credible and something that um, people can understand. I think design is always forwards and backwards. I don't think it's a linear process. I think one of the uh, challenges and maybe delights of design is, is that it cycles around and very often you start off with a particular idea, you test it, you go somewhere else and then you come back to it. And I think that's okay. But when you're presenting to the panel, you need to just set a very clear story for them to follow. Okay, uh, well, I think that's reasonably well uh, dealt with, unless there's anything else on the design review that I've missed. Uh, I, th I think the, the other aspect that I would raise is not all planning applications are the same, and typically we, we see schemes through planning. I think it would be good to see schemes post-planning, for whether it's discharge of conditions, for materials in, especially, so that the design review can ensure the, the quality as well as just the design. But the biggest issue I find is the different types of planning applications. And so a detailed planning application, or rather I should say a full application, is quite, is quite understandable because you're presented with drawings and, and details and the like. Where it becomes more complicated is with hybrid applications or outline applications because you're asking for permission for a particular set of controls, so for example parameters or guidelines, a design code. And so to help people understand the proposals, an illustrative proposal or illustrative master plan is set out and often presented to the panel. That's one way of delivering the outline. The problem is you as a panel member want to ensure that that is the way that it will be delivered. and so. Whilst you may see various illustrative views of the proposal and it looks wonderful, what we really need to be getting under the surface of is what's in the design code? What are the commitments? Are the clauses mandatory? What is the applicant actually signing up to deliver? And I've seen many panel members that actually don't really 
don't really understand how I'm planning applications and so therefore they don't ask the right questions. When I asked a client to see the development specification, they said, well, why do you want to see that? Whereas it's a key document that sets out the amount of area for all the different use classes, whether that's retail, whether it's residential and the like. And actually you can present a fabulous CGI with activity and people pushing prams and children holding balloons. But actually if the retail offer or, or the community use at ground level isn't committed to through the planning application, then you won't see that in reality. And so I think we all have to get better at understanding what we're truly reviewing. So it's a question I should have asked you earlier on, but it follows on from that, which is how do you get onto a design review panel? Now, typically, it's through relationships or experiences of working with local authorities. So when presenting to local authorities, I think they can tell if you're interested in the sort of intellectual debate of design. I think if you are able to present well yourself, then you understand also how to listen to design because you've gone through that process also. And also through applications as well. I applied to be a member of Design Southeast. Uh, I had various conversations with them and I was accepted on, onto their panel. And then it's a case of actually obviously performing as well <laughs> so if I wasn't any good then I'm sure they'd get <laughs> I wouldn't get any more invites to the panels uh, right. thankfully I still get invites so you're constantly monitored <laughs> all right very good thank you very much indeed that's what we have time for that was Nigel Bidwell director of JTP architects here in London carving out a niche for himself very nicely in the design review world my name's Austin Williams this was professional practice podcasts We will see you next time. Thank you very much indeed.